This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Stephen Paulus has written for Thomas Hampson, for Håkan Hagegård, Evelyn Lear, and even Doc Severinsen. He's the co-founder of the American Composers Forum, and his music has been described as rugged, angular, lyrical, lean, rhythmically aggressive, original, often gorgeous, moving, and uniquely American. But he will speak for himself today, so I'll turn it over to Martha, who asked him, why do you enjoy composing song? Uh, Yes, I think, uh, well, partly, I love the human voice, you know, the singing voice. It's a great vehicle. It's a very uh, wonderful sound that people make, whether they're mezzos or sopranos or tenors or baritones. And I think it really identifies, it's easy for us to identify Mm -hmm. with a human voice as someone that's actually making sounds from their own body, you know, it's coming out of their mouth. But I mean, it's it's a very delicate and yet powerful thing simultaneously. And the combination of loving the human voice and loving poetry of all kinds, I have certain favorites, which we could talk about at some time if we want. But I think it's a very, in addition to the the two loves there, the poetry and the voice, um, I think the song uh, cycle or songs are a very intimate form of performance. And when you see a singer and a pianist up there, um, it it somehow has a great intimacy to me. You know, every little nuance can be picked up and this retard and how they were breathing on this thing, how they phrase things. It's different than writing for a whole orchestra or even an opera, which uses the human voice. But I just think songs are particularly uh, captivating. When I was in college, I was never, I, I was a pianist, but I didn't really want to aspire after a certain point in time to becoming a performer that way. But I loved accompanying singers in uh, you know, their weekly lessons and I found that interesting and uh, it felt like that was a good use of my piano skills because I wasn't really interested in being front and center you know as a singer you're front and center but the pianist is important but it seems like this will sound contradictory it seems like uh, you somehow have have the back stage you're you're, you're not front and center because people are lo- listening to what the singer is doing but it's actually a very important role it somehow seems like I just don't like being front and center, in a, and I never really performed that much with singers. But I enjoyed playing at their lessons a lot because. Well, I mean, and we talk about collaboration a whole lot on this podcast, and I certainly believe, and I think I think times are changing in a way. I, I'm not quite sure that that the leader performance is necessarily about the big star singer uh, anymore. I think that the pianist is, is often getting uh, similar billing, and um, and rightly so. Yeah, or well, they can affect uh, hugely the performance. I mean, I've heard people rave about the pianist for mm-hmm. a, a absolutely, singer. And, it, and not so much about the singer. Not so much about the singer, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I never really got into performance that yeah. way. And so, especially in a vocal lesson, mm-hmm. I felt that uh, you know the teacher's always focusing on what the student is doing, sure. as, and I was just sitting there playing. They were happy that I hit most of the right notes. You know, I was never well, that's that good. Pretty rich, though, that you've been able to sit in on the lesson, so you really have an, a window into writing for the voice. I mean, you really I think know. So yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't say I have any more than 
a lot of composers or some composers, but I have learned from accompanying voices during my graduate uh, school days and also from writing a fair number of song cycles. I've been able to see how singers work and what they struggle with, where it's difficult to breathe, the, the, mm -hmm. te the various tessituras that, you know, if you're going to write in this range, okay, that's good. You can use those high notes, but you have to give the voice a rest. You have to be kind. It's not an oboe. Mm -hmm. And not that playing the oboe is easy by any stretch, but a voice is different than a saxophone yeah. or a trombone or a violin or a piano, especially a piano. And in a way, you know, when you accompany a voice, and this is what makes some of the, the pianists that are really good, just a wonderful collaborative partner, you almost kind of have to breathe. You know, the piano doesn't need to breathe or a pianist doesn't, but the singer does. And you can't be sort of like playing through their, their luft pauses or anything like you. You learn to, to react like a singer. No, I think that the best best partnerships that I've seen are those that seem completely organic, mm -hmm. where it is absolutely true that the pianist breathes along with the singer, that the piano itself is a character, that yes, the colors so, that yeah. come out. Can you speak then to the piano writing in your songs and how, I mean, do they act as character? Do they act just as color or um, how? Uh, no, I use the piano obviously to support things harmonically mm -hmm. very often uh what's in my accompaniment is not what's in the vocal line in other words you're not going to find pretty much uh, most of the time you're not going to find the vocal line doubled mm -hmm. whether i'm writing a song or an operatic uh work uh, but somehow it seems singable by the relationship that you sort of feel of your vocal line to the, to the uh the piano part, and people have told me that about choral pieces I've written as well as operas. You get a certain sense, you know, yeah, you're a tritone away, and then you're a minor six, and then you're a major second, but somehow that figure seems natural after you work on it enough. It's not purposely difficult, it's just how it comes out. I, I tend to try and weave things together by having little thematic things that reoccur, and uh, I have this theory about how we listen to music, which is basically in an associative manner. So that we hear something, say, from the singer, and a few measures later we hear that theme echoed in the piano, but the singer isn't singing it. It has a double uh, power in that it's able to sort of thematically unify singer and keyboard, but also the particular words that the singer was uh, singing might be recalled by, you know, in opera it's like a leitmotif, but uh, if the singer was singing something like, you know, um, such and such makes me feel so sad, and it's like a little thing. And then the piano comes in like dee 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 da da, like that kind of thing. It 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 unifies it by virtue of the fact that we've sort of tied words to that melodic fragment, and also that we're hearing it again. Absolutely. It? I mean, I think an audience also draws comfort from hearing things, uh, hearing a repetitive motive to begin with. Yeah. That's some <clears throat> that's something that they can grasp if it's a new piece for them, for sure. Anyway. Yeah, but I'm very careful about trying to trying to make things that complement the singer, but also mm. uh, sometimes uh, drive the singer. So, that, mm. you know, the piano is a powerful instrument. It's basically a percussion instrument as well as a lyrical one that operates by percussion. So there are things that you can do with the piano, whether it's, you know, chunky chords or, you know, rippling uh, 16th notes or whatever, that really motivate and excite the singer to sing in a certain way. I mean, you must have felt that, certainly, that, you know, this is... This is where the accompaniment really goes wild and everything, and isn't this going to be neat? And, and that's where I think it becomes even more of a, an intimate collaboration. In a moment, you'll hear Andrew Garland and Donna Lowy perform the first magical. and second songs of A Heartland Portrait. But first, Stephen Paulus introduces Flying at Night.
that I kind of made sort of euphoric and ecstatic with a lot of swirling high notes and things like that. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm very conscious of is trying to set the text in a way that complements the voice. The piano has to be very much uh, a, a person on on the scene. The piano has a personality. It's a character. And one of the great joys is watching the pianist and the and the singer collaborate. They don't even have to look at each other. They know there's this move, and the pianist has this little subtle gesture, and the singer knows what that is, and they've done it you know, dozens or hundreds of times, and they hesitate just a little bit. This or there's is what Stephen Paulus has to say about the second song how to do it. at midnight. Part of the thing is when you select the poems and when you put them all together, you want some thematic unity. The poems are all about X, Y, or Z. They're all about um, heartland scenes, but they're about the emotions behind what the man who's looking at the yard light at the end of the driveway is thinking. He's maybe regretting age or the loneliness of the night. So you begin to get those themes. He he uses his poetry uh, with real common images that wouldn't appear to have anything special about them until you realize he's talking about uncommon, much more deeply running subterranean things. And that's what really grabbed me about them. Part of what you do when you're looking for poetry that's going to fit together is find things that will demand contrasting settings. So the, the one about the, the, the voyeur looking in the window is very slow motion and, and sinewy in a way. The one about the dog barking is very, you know, sort of pounding rhythmically mm-hmm. somewhere in the night, a dog is barking. Piano can Beautiful. go, dot, 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 dot. you can have uneven uh, mixed meters and, and something to suggest... Uh, you know, the irritation that might come with the dog is barking, and then you sort of realize there's a reason it's happening, there's other stuff going on.
somewhere in the night. A dog is barking. Somewhere in the night, a dog is barking. Starlight like beads of dew along his tight chain. read just a little quote about what I found on the web of what his writing is like and just wanted to know what you thought about it. It said, Kuzer's poetry is rare for its sense of being so firmly and enduringly rooted in one locale. Though Kuzer does not consider himself a regional poet, his work often takes place in a recognizably Midwestern setting. While Kuzer was named the U.S. Poet Laureate in 2004, he was described by the Librarian of Congress as the first poet laureate chosen from the Great Plains. Now, I mean, I, I chose that quote just because, I mean, your cycle is a Heartland portrait. So I don't know if you have anything else to add about that and, and him as a poet or essayist. Uh, actually, uh, when Tom Hampson's agent said, this is, this is who Tom wants you to set the poetry mm-hmm. of Kuzer, and he's a poet laureate and everything, I went out and bought like four or five of his poetry volumes and started reading them. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't too keen on it. And I, I have definite reactions text sometimes it's because of the way certain words or phrases uh don't appear to me to be musical and that's a whole study in itself and it depends on who the composer is and sometimes uh i like or, or dislike something simply because of the sentiment that's being expressed in, in the case of the Kuzer poetry you know i started reading these things and they're about you know a dog barking in the night and a step ladder and and uh you know the cicadas and all this kind of stuff and I'm very big on believing that there should be some sort of connection between all the poems. They can't just be five poems that were by the same poet and we threw them all into the pot and we made a stew out of it. So I had trouble finding common themes and I had trouble being inspired by the poetry. And then all of a sudden something clicked and I started seeing, you know, the, the poem uh, about the dog barking wasn't really just about the dog barking and the poem about the porch light I, and I was wasn't just about the porch light. There seemed I'm sure he would say this in a heartbeat and just say, you know, gee, this composer didn't get it right away. But there seemed to be an undercurrent of uh, a theme to uh, the whole autumnal, thing. Autumnal, it seems in a way. I don't know. If, yeah. I think you're right. And yeah. I also, I mean, the the, the picture that he draws uh, with his words 
is always one that's very vivid. So you see, you know, the end of the lane and this porch light and having grown up in the Midwest, I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that. I grew up in you know, a suburb of St. Paul and now live in St. Paul in the city. But, you know, I've been on people's farms. I know what that uh, porch light looks like in the old swing. I know what the light at the end of the lane that's got a bunch of flies and, and bugs circling around it at night is like. And, I, you know, the ladder laid by the side of the house and the dog barking. And why is the dog barking? And it suddenly started to speak to me. It was like, well, these are really homes from the heartland, vast stretches of Oklahoma and Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and all these small towns uh, with farms out there are like this. And it sort of took on a meaning. meaning. And then I found, um, actually, uh, this, the way I work on some of these things, the project can change while I'm in the middle of it. I originally found seven poems that I thought would work. And I devised a system of making the cycle sort of modular. It could be sung as seven, or it could be sung as four poems, and three of them left out, or it could be sung as three, which would allow you a full cycle of 20 or 25 minutes, a shorter one of maybe 15, 18, and an even shorter one of maybe like 12. And I thought this would give, I was thinking beyond Tom Hampson. What a great idea. Well, I liked it a lot. Unfortunately, because of timing, and not entirely due to my fault, but I don't want to incriminate him. It didn't (laughs) have nothing to do with Tom, but I was sort of, I wasn't a last-minute choice on the commission, but I was, I was asked to write a piece because someone else didn't come through with theirs. And so I got four songs, four poems set, and uh, decided that would work, the four poems that would work, uh, but it, I would get to the other three later. And after, the day after the premiere, uh, Tom called me, and he said, you know, it doesn't need three more, it needs one more. And I said, okay, so I added a fifth. And it became next you'll hear the remaining songs of the cycle the third and fifth song played now in the order of the premiere performance the third song is an august night i love that poem uh, partly because it's a little bit edgy and suggestive especially as a as a song a song i mean so many songs you go hear about various things oh that's nice you know the fish or the whatever but this one actually, as far as I can tell, is describing a voyeur. And what's well, wonderful, a <laughs> peeping Tom. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and at first I thought, oh, that's, that's not going to work. But then I thought, no, I love, I love this. What's cool about the poem is that uh, Ted Kuzer sort of lets out the idea of what's happening very slowly and gradually. Well, I'm, I elongate it more by the way I said it, and I make it sort of wandering and ephemeral and, and lyrical and you know, he talks about high in the cicadas and this and this and that and everything. And then you, then you finally, uh, you know, it suggests a warm, sultry summer night. And then you get this picture of a man standing out there, I think, if I recall correctly, in a white T-shirt with his black hair greased back. And so you're starting to get a picture of a man. And then you see that he's looking into the window of a, um, I don't know if he says naked young girl, but I think that was suggested or implied, lying on a uh, white linen bed with a moonlight shining in. And you think, I know what's happening. It's like the final picture of the puzzle has been thrown in there. But the way I said it was to make it seem, I know, I know to most people it won't seem harmless, but I tried to do the thing that he was doing as a poet, which is painting a picture, uh, which is about desire and sensuality. But I mean, it's, I, you should feel... It's by, not a crime scene. It's not, it's not a crime scene. Uh, yeah, if the girl woke up, sure. she'd probably scream or yell or pull a shade or something. Yeah. But it, it, it's like a painting. Yeah. 
and you get he creates a very vivid picture of this, and you know it could have been said a number of ways, but I I painted it as a slow motion sonic and visual picture that that can be conjured up, which makes it seem uh, in a way a little bit shocking and a little bit surprising, but you kind of almost go huh at the end of it, and I I, I thought that was uh, it was a nice challenge to make that. The fifth song is uh, a summer as natural night as possible. At the end of the street, a porch light is burning, showing the way. How simple, how perfect it seems. The darkness, the white house like a passage through summer and into a snowfield. Night after night, the lamp comes on at dusk. The end of the street stands open and white, and an old woman sits there, tending the lonely gate. I like that one because of the way it it, it talks about, as I recall, something about aging and the, and the inevitability of things. And, and the inevitability is, in Ted Cruz's poem, I think is, there's sort of a sadness that you know somehow this will all take place and transpire. And again, you feel the loneliness of the plains or the Midwest or a building and a, a yard light and you know 400 acres and you're the only thing on it. Okay. 
of the street, a porch light is burning. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank and, you, Martha. It's uh, a pleasure. Yeah, this has been a great pleasure for us, too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Erica Switzer and Martha Guth. Thank you to Andy Garland and Donna Lowy for sharing their performance and to Stephen Paulus for sharing his music and his ideas. And as always, we thank Matthew Principe with immense gratitude for being our brilliant producer. <laughs>